Go ahead in Second Corinthians chapter chapter one and running through these points last week. Boy, I don't know if you've ever, as you read through Scripture, you you land on a text and you're sitting there, and the significance of the of that text just kind of slaps you in the face, and you sit there and just kind of absorb it. And there's there's two powerful statements in these first eleven verses, and today we're going to land the plane, if you will, with verse eleven and and the, and his call to prayer, a little unusual, not unusual, maybe is not the right word, but I, when I read his, his, his call to prayer, it's, it's powerful because it focuses on congregational prayer. There's a lot of times we talk about individual prayer, appealing to God and interceding. He talks about the, 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 the church aspect of that and helping. So we're going we're gonna to land the plane with that. But coming back, I, I want those, those two powerful statements that are found in these 11 verses. I want them to, to sink in, and I want us to think through how, how really they come to life in our lives. I, I don't want the text to be, to be something we, we study and we just walk through it and understand what it says. Okay, what, what does this mean? How, what does this look like? What does it look like in, in how this plays out in my life? And the two powerful statements that we've We've gone through, and that we we've gone through the first one in verse four talks about the comfort, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna pick back on some of this in just a moment. We're gonna ask you a, uh, some questions. Verse four is the first powerful statement, is what I'm calling it. They're they're both followed by conjunctions, conjunctions that give purpose. Okay, here's this statement, and here's a reason for it. Here's a meaning for it. Here's a purpose of it, and so we have that in verse. Four, where there's that so that conjunction leads to a statement of purpose, and then in verse nine there's also but that conjunction that leads to another statement of purpose, and, and both of those are are significant. So backing up just in, in just one moment, we see Paul. Get one of those. We got Paul struggling with the Corinthian church. Multiple letters, fourth letter, the rebukes, the corrections, the call to repentance, the exhortations. All testify to his, the, the difficulty and the struggles he has with with the church. His apostle his apostleship is challenged, challenged uh, in light of what others what they're experiencing, and so he finds himself uh, trying to point to the legitimacy of his ministry, legitimacy of his apostleship. Got it. Sounds pretty good. He points to his suffering. He points to his afflictions. He points to those as affirmations of his ministry. So whereas they were looking for power, presence, you know, powerful speakers like Apollos was, they're, they're looking at Paul, and he's the exact opposite of that. And in the midst of that, two, two things emerge, not in just in this chapter, but throughout this letter. We talk about the, the grace emerges, and really that's why I want to, the, the sufficiency of God's grace is where I really want our, our thoughts to be in, in, in this entire, in the entire 13 chapters. Mentioned grace is mentioned more in this letter than any other letter except for Romans. I mentioned Romans being written from here, so that's the, the foundation, the background for it. And then comfort. I think comfort is mentioned, I don't know, maybe 14 times in this letter. By far more than any other letter. So he focuses on the comfort, afflictions, comfort, and God's grace emerge from, from this letter. Talked about last week about the how he starts out with words of praise. He starts out in verse three: "Blessed be the God and Father." These are words of of proclamation of praise. So this whole 
This whole subject of conflict, affliction, and comfort rises from a position of praise. Not woe is me, but wow is God. And that's, that's the position he... That's, that's, his, that's where he begins, and that's where we should begin, even as we embark on that. So a beautiful introduction to this. And he does something... Remember, he's facing Jews, Jews who are accusing him of not being legitimate, and he's, he's facing conflict in the church, and he affirms the lordship of Christ and, of course, the divinity of Christ, even in his first introduction statement, basically mentioning where his comfort comes from, the source of his comfort, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. So he introduces it by giving the picture of the, the fatherly picture aspect of God and Obviously, comfort through uh, that will come through through Jesus Christ. First question that we we spoke to last week, but I want us to I want you to give me feedback on this. How the, in verse four, the first powerful statement follows this conjunction in verse four. He says, "Who comforts us?" In all of our affliction, talk about the Father who comforts us. Understandably so, right? When you talk about comfort, comfort uh, sous-entend affliction. Meaning comfort, the, the understanding and comfort is that there's affliction. You don't have comfort without affliction. You're not comforted unless you've been afflicted. You're not comforted unless you've been under pressure. So you experience comfort. Inevitably, that means that there's trials, pressures, affliction on the front end. Otherwise, there's no comfort to experience. Now, of course, you'll link it even to the comfort we receive in Christ, which is primarily in salvation, first and foremost in salvation, and then not just in the moment of salvation, but as we walk uh, in our walk of, of faith as well. So verse 4, he comforts us in all of our affliction, and he makes this statement so that, in other words, that the purpose of this comfort which flows from our affliction, is what? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Now, that nuance it gives there, one that, that is impactful as well, because a lot of times you'll hear from someone as they're going through their affliction, and they're, actually we might even feel the same way. It's like, well, do I really have the right to speak into that affliction? Because I haven't experienced that affliction. In other words, it's not, okay, you haven't experienced what I've experienced, so you can speak to what I've experienced. No, the comfort I've received from Christ is one that speaks to any affliction with the comfort which, which we ourselves are comforted by God. So he, he speaks to not only the comfort that he's received for the purpose of making us able to comfort others in their affliction. We talk about verse 6. It's not just a matter of saying, well, you know, years down the road, after I've gained valuable experience, I can look back at my affliction and say, well, you know, I learned something from that. It's in the midst of that that I can comfort and can I express God's comfort in the midst of that. So let me ask you, have you been or how can you comfort others in your affliction? So I change the color of this little thing here. So this is a green question mark. That's, that's you. So... Anytime you see the green question mark, that's, that's, the you, that's the you moment. Some of you, I know, need color codes, you know, so that's kind of... All right. Tell me. Jeff, um, when I had my accident, I know that at any moment we can die. That's, everybody knows that. But 
but as I was flying through the air, I knew that any moment I could die. And I did. Um, you were talking about affliction. How could I fly 125 feet off the parkway and only hit one thing? And that one thing straightened me out so that I landed with my foot instead of my head. I learned that God has a plan. And it brought me so much closer to him. Is it a little is it a little cheesy to say that we're invincible until God's done with us? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but to a certain extent, we understand what the, that makes sense now that we live recklessly, that's, obviously. That's what I truly did experience. I in two seconds my prayer was be with the girls in Rita and I'll see you soon. I never expected to come out of that accident. As I came off my motorcycle, I never expected to come out. I fully expected to be in his arms. Let me ask you, how do you comfort others in that? God loves you and God has a plan for you. And God brought me so much closer to him. I I allowed myself to come closer to him. I believe that we have a choice in whether we want to serve God or not. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Steve. God used it in my life to share with others. Yes. Well, 13 years ago, we lost a grandson a month from turning 18, instantly in a car accident. And when Judy's granddaughter, I went, when she was killed in the car accident, I prayed for that family, even though I don't know them, because I know what we went through, and I could relate to what they were going through, and I shared that with you. There, there's something, there's a bond that actually Paul's drawing on this and, and showing the church there's a bond that comes from the comfort that we share in Christ that cannot be experienced in other ways. You could probably think of a bond that you have with another family, another believer, because you walk through the valley with them. Jay mentioned that young man that's in our home. That, that family loves us. We, they're, they're, they're a precious family to us. They named their second son after me. We were sitting there, you know why we're so close? Because in the moment of their greatest need, when she lost her mother, as a young, young wife, we were there by their side, loving on them, loving on their kids, loving on their family. There's a bond, and what, what you see Paul drawing on, he says... In our, in our comfort, first of all, he draws on our commonality and our, the comfort that comes from the sufferings of Christ. Begin, of course, with salvation. And from there, how we experience this comfort in our lives, is, that's, that's the bond that, that really ties. And as believers, as we are committed to him, as you and I walk together in truth, as we go to battle and spiritual battles together, we'll lock arms together. 
And we will, because we'll experience faith in a way that you just can't experience it by grilling a hot dog, popping popcorn, or watching a movie. But as you're going through grief together, but you grief and hope. As you face difficulties, as you face the loss of a child, you face the loss of a husband, you lost the face of a loved one, you face uncertainties of a job, you face uncertainties of health, you're waiting for the next prognosis, you're waiting for the doctor to tell you what's wrong. And you, you walk through all of that. And as brothers and sisters lock arms and they, they look towards Christ as their comfort, that's a bond that's stronger than anything the world can produce. And so as you and I experience affliction, what flows from that is comfort. My, my fear perhaps in some of that is that if we don't experience a stronger bond is because we're not experiencing the afflictions that are that of the believer. Mr. Rick. Psalm 84 has meant a lot to me. It talks about how um, people, faithful people go through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping. It says, passing through the valley of Baca, they may get a spring. And nearly rain also covers it with blessings. And studying that, I found out that that refers to people traveling to Jerusalem to worship and digging cisterns in the tough valleys along the way. So when it finally did rain, the rain would be collected these cisterns, and it would be there for the worshiper on his way back home, and also for others who had to follow them at later times through that same valley. And we, uh, we experienced that with our son Josh when he died of leukemia. And, uh, and I talk about that often when I speak at conferences. And every time I do, there's somebody there who needed to hear it. Yeah. As we talk about all the blessings that came through that, the people that he had an influence on while he was suffering, the people who would go up to visit and try to <clears throat> encourage him and then come away and encourage themselves. Part of that is because there are so many things that we, we believe to be true in God's Word. But in when they come to life, there's, there's power behind that. So I can still remember as a young man before I left for the mission field. Jane and I getting ready to leave for the field. I can remember Rick giving the testimony of his son after he had passed from leukemia. I can remember him at 17 giving the testimony of going in there. And I remember one time where the, he was... They had not given him the anesthetics that they needed, and they had. He was in a lot of pain, but he couldn't tell them they were in a lot of pain until the rest wore off. And it was just talk, going through that prayer time, I can remember how it carried me for years. Still looking back at Rick's testimony of God's goodness in the midst of that. There, there, there's, I don't know. If there's anything more powerful than taking God's word and seeing it come to life in truth. And never we, every one of us. Like C was saying, every one of us are going to face death. And he, he recognizes this when he comes to the end of his road. But when you recognize you're facing death, but you see someone else at the gates, and their faith holds true, of course it encourages you. Because someday you're going to be at the same gate. You're going to be at the same place. And 
you're asking yourself, how, how is the grace of God going to be, going to, going to flow and, and come to life as well? And, and it's so encouraging when you, when you see that happening. I thought I had a quote from Bonhoeffer on this. I just want to read it. He says, I have, <clears throat> he says, I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. And the more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else become between us recede. You know, so the, the, you know he's saying the more genuine our, our relationship with Christ is the, amongst us, the more the rest will, will recede. And the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ. But through Christ, we do have one another, holy and for all eternity. As Christ becomes more and more, everything else becomes becomes less and less. Thankfully, so that's that's my my prayer. Even as we talk about creating fellowship, would be a fellowship breakfast, a fellowship meals. The point is not fellowship for the sake of of of. of, of just chatting together, but it's getting to know each other. And as you grow together, as you pray together, as I end verse 11 here, then the bond of fellowship will grow stronger in the midst of adversity in ways it could never grow and deepen in the midst of, of, of blessings, if you will. So comfort, we mentioned some of these. Uh, purpose of the sufferings of Christ, comfort in salvation. Comfort in salvation at work, meaning that the ongoing comfort received finds its foundation in Christ and his salvation as well, of course. Foundation of our comfort is our salvation in Christ. Look at verse 7. What is, what is Paul's statement here? What is Paul confident about? He says in verse 7, Our hope for you is unshaken. Now, yeah, you go back, unshaken? I mean, how is it unshaken? They're questioning him. They don't know if he's a legitimate apostle. They're, they, they, they're following the super apostles. I mean, they're, they're, they're in sin. They're rebellious. He, he says, but yet with that, knowing that, he says what? My hope for you is unshaken. Why is that? Why is he confident about The, the sufferings produce comfort, and that he knows he's going to finish the work. He knows he's going to finish the work. In other words, as they share, why is he saying as, as they share in the suffering? He's actually making more of a of a declaration here, right? He's, made, he's pronouncing. It's actually like a statement of faith that he's making here, a confidence in the work of God through the gospel among the Corinthians. I mean, he knows that as that's why he started out right at the beginning, right? You're the church of God at Corinth. As believers, as the church of God, my unshaken confidence doesn't come from the fact that you guys are going to plow through this and you're going to be zealous and you're going to climb that mountain, take that hill. The confidence comes from we know that as you share in our sufferings, first and foremost in the sufferings of Christ, as you identify with the sufferings of Christ, you will also share in our comfort. It's, it's a proclamation. It's actually it's like a statement of faith of confidence in the work of God through the gospel among the Corinthians. I think we, even, even in, in, in this task I have here, I can say the same thing as it pertains to you, that I, I am confident, not that I'm going to experience what you experience, 
Not that I'm going to go through the valleys that you go through. Not that I'm going to face the afflictions you're facing. But I can't be confident that as a child of God, unshaken, that as you share in those sufferings of Christ, you'll also share in, in our comfort that he provides. Paul expresses confidence in the work of Christ. And he places an invitation calling Corinthians believers to share in those sufferings as well. Verse 9 is the second powerful statement in, the, in these 11 verses. Comfort. In verse 9 he says, Say, if we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Here's this conjunction that leads to purpose and meaning of, of this experience, right? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If you were to walk through the pressures Paul was experiencing, he was not immune to any pressures, whether it be financial pressures. He talks about money a number of times. He talks about the generosity in chapters 8 and 9. He talks about him working so he wouldn't be a burden. He talks about the, 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 those needs. He talks about not being heard, not being listened to, not, being, not that he's insecure at all. But I'm saying he's, he's facing the same pressures, a number of pressures that we would understand, we would relate to. He describes them as beyond beyond strength, beyond despairing of life and sentence of death. One author said that the, the, the picture that is given here, being burdened beyond our strength, was also used to describe an, an overloaded ship that rides low in the water. In other words, that ship is, you know, that is, is riding low and is barely holding on and you feel like it's about ready to take water and sink. That's the, the picture that he's given here. He was so utterly, unbearably crushed that he couldn't get up. There was no way of escape. Two things that I, I brought out from this. What does it look like to be burdened beyond our strength? Now, I've, I've made light of this at times that one of the key words in, in this generation, younger generation, is overwhelmed. Everyone's overwhelmed. I told someone, I forget, I was teasing about them at school here, and he says, my job is to not appease, but to give, teach them to have bigger plates. Everybody's walking around with these little dessert plates. I want them to have this big plate that can handle more. Because we do live in a generation who's quickly, young people are quickly overwhelmed. You're thinking, you're overwhelmed? I mean, you've got, you know, you're taking six hours of college credit and you're not working? And uh, <laughs> you're thinking, I worked 30 hours, I took 18 hours in class. It's like, we do have a generation that, 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 that fortitude is not what a previous generation had. I mean, there, there is that reality. And then that's the reason why employees would say, yeah, I have a hard time finding workers. Because they don't understand what it means to come on time. They don't understand what it means to work eight-hour days. You know, they start sweating. They think that they're having a heart attack. I mean, there's, there's all these stressors. So what does it mean to come to the point where you're beyond their strength, despairing of life, sentence of death? Of course, part of that, is there a literal sentence of death? Probably because he was pursued to be to be his life being taken. But beyond that, what, what does it look like for you to come to the point in your life where you're, you're that ship, you're still floating, you're not taking on water, but boy, the next wave is going to sink it. What does it look like in your life when that happens? What brings you to that, what brings you to that point? 
exhausts all your efforts and you realize that there's so much you can do. You've exhausted all your efforts? Again, he lands a plane here in verse 11 with prayer, right? It's interesting because many times people say, well, I guess all there's left to do is pray. <laughs> you know, we don't always say it that way, but we often think it that way, right? Yeah, when you've exhausted all your efforts. Some of you are plotters and planners. I mean, you check the boxes, you've got all the, you know, everything color-coded, and when something goes off the rails, you're like, that's overwhelming to you. Others, like Katie, I was kidding with her the other day, says, ah, her kids are running around. Just, you're from California. Those kids can just run. I mean, that, you know, there's no, we're free-spirited. Others get stressed out when they're not walking the line. And I see some teachers walking down the hallway, you know, the kids are not walking down that line. If they're not straight, the teacher gets all worked up. Others, kids are like this, you know, it's like, okay. What does it look like for you when you come to the point and say, man, I just, what brings you to that point? Can you exhaust all your efforts? You know, it can be quickly overwhelming when you start thinking about the uncertainties. We don't like uncertainties. We don't like, man, what is this going to look like? Now, Paul was facing, of course, a number of uncertainties, not only at this point he's getting ready to head towards now, he's here in his third journey, so he's not yet heading to, to Rome. It can be quickly... What overwhelms you when you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and your mind starts racing? What's overwhelming you? The unknown. Isn't something unsettling about not knowing? Most people, one of the first unknowns they try to settle is... Do you have enough for retirement? Can I can I retire and still eat? Can I can I get there? Can I can I can I make it there? And every and everything society feeds around the fear of are you going to have enough? You ever seen those little pop up ads? Do you have enough to retire on? Oh, I don't know. Let me see. What's the average person your age have? Oh, I don't know. Let me see. And, it's amazing how there are the, the, the spiritual and mental discipline of being settled in your mind with things you don't know. <clears throat> For me, arriving at the end of my strength is when I, I can't control things. Things spin in every direction, and I, I'm not getting done what I want to get done. My little agenda got messed up. I thought I was doing this from 8 to 8.20, but... This happened, and whatever it is, everything starts getting, and you get you you get to the point where despair, discouragement, some fall into depression, some fall into you know you because you you lose a perspective that is not just in the moment, but backing up as to what and one of these verses a bit later he talks about in verse ten. God's deliverance, that uh, the hope, the hope in God's deliverance. I guess that adage of don't sweat the small stuff, right? Don't sweat the small stuff. That's hard to do. Well, I try to, I try to back up the way I handle it. I try to back up in my mind. What's really the worst thing can happen? <laughs> I know, maybe I'm an oddity here, but I thought, okay, ultimately. God's going to fulfill his purposes. If it's in life or death, he'll fulfill his purposes. 
If he wants whatever area of ministry that I'm responsible for, if he wants that to grow, he'll make it grow. If he wants to die off, he'll make it die off. If he wants the school to exist, it'll exist. If he doesn't, he'll close it. I mean, I ultimately, I have to work. And I, yes, I work long days. But at the end of the day, I have to walk home and go to bed and realize, hey, this is the Lord's. And there's great comfort in knowing that. And I, when I walked away from a guilt-driven theology of ministry that I had for years to a, a comforting, sovereign God theology behind it, wow, that changed my life. Because so much of my life was guilt-driven. I'm not doing enough. I'm not working hard enough. It depends on me. And you pray, you pray, but you act and act as if it all depends on you. And that creates a lot of conflict. And But when I realized, hey... I, I still work just as hard, but at the end of the day, I need to leave it at the foot of the cross and leave it at his feet. I, the second question here is, why was Paul's weaknesses and trials and sufferings discrediting to the Corinthians? Because he's, he's making those, what Paul's doing, he's affirming these as, as evidences of the legitimacy of his faith and evidences of the legitimacy of him as, as an apostle. Why was this discrediting to the Corinthians? Why was the afflictions, his weaknesses, his trials, his pressures, why were all these things discrediting to the Corinthians? The way I saw it there, he, Paul's actually talking about his, well, his affliction. He's talking about his affliction because of his service to Christ. And, in, and I'm thinking of the first letter and then this letter also that He's bringing out and drawing out to the Corinthians that the, the suffering which he has, and and he says several times how well they're living and, and they're they're taking a road in their life that is not. They're looking for the easy road, um, not necessarily. So he's trying to point out, you know, be like me. So he's pointed to the afflictions as it pertains to his ministry, and he's pointed to them as evidences of his ministry. It's, it's, it's human nature, I'm going to say, that whenever bad things happen, you start thinking you did something bad. The car broke down, the refrigerator, and now the basement's flooded. I mean, it's like, man, I'm like, what did I do? And that, this is that prophetic speaking that I hear. You know, so. <laughs> So there's something in us that says, I must have done something wrong. Part of that is because it helps us understand that sin has consequences. Now, these are not sinful things. But they're watching him. They're saying, man, he's weak. He's having a hard time. He's not very well spoken. He's this and that. He's like, man, he's persecuted. Look at this guy over here. I mean, he's fervent in speech. He's, wow, he's impressive. And he actually, his, he demonstrates that is in his weaknesses that he's strong and the strength that comes from that. And I like what he says in verse in verse 9. Who's the author? Let me see. I think I've, I have all these. I'm not going to have time for the questions, so I just have to. I'll put this down, though. When he says in verse 9, second part, right, following conjunction, but that was to make us rely. Who's the author that is making? The Lord. It's not the circumstances that, that are making it. These things, these, these, this, this affliction is there to make us. There's intentionality. There's purpose in it. 
the world only sees it as fate. The world sees it as weakness. The world sees it as bad karma. He's saying, hey, the, the, this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises from the dead. And there's a beautiful pattern that's described here from there. This is, this is God's doing. He's doing the making. Not only is he one that raises from the dead, he's the one that brings life and comfort in our, in our affliction. The apostle bears in his body as he speaks here, the death of Jesus in order that the life of Christ might be manifest. A little bit later in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He speaks of God's resurrection power in the present tense. This points not only to what God will do on that last day, but what he does in the here and now. I put down here the pattern of affliction. Affliction, death, resurrection. Verse 11, chapter 4 as well, says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 mirror what he's describing here. Human affliction has a purpose of teaching us to have more reliance on God. I mean, what do we naturally want to do? How do we practically learn to depend on Him when our strength is gone? How do we naturally do that? We do that by affirming the truth of God's Word. We don't do that by asking questions of why God is doing what He's doing as if we could understand the mind of God. We do that by affirming who God is in the moment. We do that by proclaiming, worshiping the Lord in that moment. Not because we have answers, not because we have certainty, not because the doubts have been washed away, but because our confidence in Him is unshaken and unwavering. Two comments that I have here. Deep certainty of death for Paul led to deep trust in God. It's like the... the the more he suffered with Christ and faced death, the more, the deeper his trust in God came from that. Paul not only expresses confidence in the work of Christ, he also places an invitation. Oh, sorry, read my notes on the long page. The insufficiency of man is the means to the revelation of the all-sufficiency of God. When I reached the greater realization of my own insufficiencies, and they're there, they're constantly there, they're always there, I just don't always realize they're there. It's kind of like waking up and, and, and feeling, discovering a, a health problem that's been there for years, but just the pain shows up at one moment in time. So does our insufficiency is a, is a constant reality. We're just not always faced with that reality. But when we are... It's a means for the revelation of the all-sufficient God. Three times in verse 10, he speaks to deliverance. Verse 10, he says, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. And on Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. He gives us, past, he gives us praise and His recognition for past deliverance. 
He gives praise and recognition for future near deliverance to come. And then he gives, he, ultimately he'll deliver us again, the ultimate deliverance to come as well. And he brings all that to bear. i got two minutes. So let me give you this long quote about on prayer in this last section. I think what, what impacted me when I first read this comment on prayer is the, the congregational aspect of prayer. Verse 11 says, you also must help us by prayer. As if, okay, so the, are, you, are we saying that God, that, that prayer changes things? How, how does that, what does that mean? You know, you're helping us in prayer so that many will give thanks. Actually, if you look at the, the, the word structure in the, in, the, in, the, in the Greek, where you read commentaries about it, I'm not Greeking you here. I'm just uh, saying, there's two words used there. It's many faces or many persons. In other words, it's, it's a better picture. He says, so that many faces will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through prayer. Let me read this, this quote and, and end with these few points here. Prayer is indeed a mystery, but it is stressed over and over again in the New Testament as a vital prerequisite for the release and experience of God's power. It is true that it is God who delivers and that God stand... Mm, I think I got a word... No need of stand, mm, stands in. Uh, punctuation, thank you. See, a little difference of punctuation. Stands in no need of human prayers before he can act on behalf of his afflicted servants. Yet, there is the manward as well as the godward aspect of such deliverance. On the manward side is summed up in the duty of Christians to intercede in prayer for their fellow believers who are enduring affliction. In prayer, human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. Thus, the duty of prayer is not a modification of God's power, but a glorification of it. We miss so much. Of, I think we, we miss out on so much of that. That's, that's lacking in our ability to have corporate prayer uh, together. And in doing so, up and down there, prayer leads to many, many faces being involved in prayer. Uh, leads, to thanks, leads to thankfulness. The conjunction there again, many conjunctions here, is, is what? So that many will give thanks. It, it, it breeds and leads to thankfulness. Prayer is designed to give glory to God. Prayer is not for relief and affliction, but prayer is that rather they would be comforted in affliction by the Father, and in doing so that many will give thanks. Giving thanks for comfort received in the promise of his deliverance. We have one last quote and we'll end in prayer with that one. Prayer is neither the surrender to the inevitability of God's will nor the attempt to manipulate God to do our will. But prayer is the entrance at his gracious invitation to bring before the throne the afflictions of the saints. So that's one reason why prayer requests and prayer time is important. It's not just getting to know your aches and pains for the week. It's so that we can, in our afflictions, in our pressures, in our trials, lift each other before the throne, experience God's comfort together, and in doing so, create a bond that is that of the church. And what a, what a, joy, what a joy that is.
I've, I've enjoyed these, these, these uh, few verses in this chapter. He goes on in, in, in verse 12 about not boasting, and we'll walk through that next time. But uh, what a blessing that God's Word has been. So let me go ahead and close our time in, in the Word of Prayer. Father, I first ask that I would be more fervent and more diligent even in prayer. Prayer, Lord, trusting you as, as God of all mercies, God of all comforts. Lord, that we might turn to you, not out of a desire to escape our affliction, but our desire to find comfort. And the fuller we experience comfort, the greater we will be able to comfort others. And as we see your comfort, we'll use that, Lord, to learn to depend more and more on you. So, Lord, as I, as I see the pressures in my life, may I look at them as opportunities to depend on you and look to you in the process, Lord. I thank you for that. And, Lord, I don't know what every family is experiencing today. There's no doubt we're all experiencing pressures and trials of one nature or another, some greater than others. May we lift each other up in prayer. May we help each other up in prayer. And may we do so and, and in doing so develop a spirit of thankfulness and gratefulness, Lord. We commit this to you. Pray for Pastor as he brings the Indian disservice and brings the second service. And then the Lord separate this morning. May, you have, may your name be praised and glorified. And all of this, in your name we pray. Amen. <coughs>